I hope you were um, all able to either download or print out or whatever you do with uh, the notes. As we had done um, about oh, a year ago or, or so, maybe it was a little less than that, um, I, I decided to intersperse, uh, as we study various books of the Bible, uh, a review of some of the Psalms. I think it's important to do that. Many times the Psalms are avoided or just read at nice times like uh, weddings or, or special invocations at banquets and stuff like that, or of course even sometimes at funerals. But rarely are they studied in depth, and I think that's um, not good. Uh, the 150 Psalms that make up the Psalter, as it's often called, are, were the hymn book of ancient Israel. They were collected uh, into uh, books, uh, and uh, the, the translation I'm using highlights the books, which uh, if we ever get that far, we'll look at them. But the Psalms are really a mixture of all kinds of different. There are laments, there are thanksgiving, there are praise. And we're going to begin this little section of studying chapter, uh, Psalm 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13. They're the five we're going to study over the next couple of weeks. Uh, begins with uh, Psalm 9, which is a hymn of uh, triumphant thanksgiving. Uh, if you look at the superscription, that's the little header right above the beginning of the psalm, which was actually added a little bit later. It tells us it's a psalm of David. There's no reason to doubt that. Uh, it's a little hard to actually prove it, but there's no reason to doubt that, that we'll go with that, that this is one of the psalms of David. Of the 150 psalms, David wrote about 72 of them, uh, maybe give or take one or two. There's some debate about a couple of them, but anyway, he wrote, therefore, close to half of the psalms that are in the Psalter. This, the, the psalms were the hymn book of Israel, and you'll see, again, in that superscription, this is addressed to the choir master, that uh, these are the lyrics that he would then put the music to. The worship services in ancient Israel in as part of the tabernacle or later in uh, the temple uh, were very loud, uh, vo boisterous, lots of instruments, and it was uh, not at all like your worship services in your typical church. Now, I said that somewhat humorously, but uh, we are somewhat reserved uh, in many of our services, but uh, there's a great deal of evidence, and you see that, for example, in the great hymn and worship and praise to God after the completion of the walls in Jerusalem, Duke of Nehemiah. They made, their singing and worship was so loud they could hear it in villages uh, several miles away from Jerusalem, the Bible tells us. So we have to imagine that as the congregants sang this hymn, Psalm 9. It was sung with triumphant confidence, uh, loud and, and boisterous thanksgiving, and it is probably a praise that, again, if it is written by David, which I see no reason why it is not, uh, is thanking God for His triumphant glory and honor in taking care of Israel, in defeating Israel's enemies, and so on. And one final comment before we dig into this. As we move particularly into the second half of the psalm, which is verse 13 through 20, the sense of 13 through 20 is what will really happen at the end of time in the final judgment of God in terms of what is in Revelation 20 called the great white throne judgment. 
One of the things to always remember about a psalm like this is this psalm is elaborating on and commenting upon the sovereignty of God and his providence, his involvement in human affairs, but also that God is a God of justice. And it is, it is hard for us sometimes when we see unjust things happening to not explain, God, why aren't you doing something? As we learned in our study of the book of Habakkuk, just because we don't see God doing something in a space-time moment of history doesn't mean he isn't doing something. And God's justice at the end will always prevail. And so as we begin the psalm with all those introductory comments, let me read verses 1 and 2 of the psalm and then comment upon it. What I want you to observe are the key verbs of these two verses. I will give thanks to Yahweh with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Now, let's make a couple of observations here. First of all, in verse 1, you see, as we've seen a lot as we've studied the Old Testament together, the term Lord, the title Lord, is it should be in uppercase, it should be capital letters, that's Yahweh. If you need to be reminded of that, just be reminded of that. Whenever you see the name of the Lord in capitals, that's Yahweh. The other is at the end of verse 2, the other title for God is O Most High. The Hebrew there is El El Yon, E-L, second word, E-L-Y-O-N, El El Yon. <clears throat> it is a title of God, fairly widely used in the Old Testament, but it is a title of God that focuses on his power, his position, and his might. And so most high, elevated, above everything, above everyone, the powerful, transcendent God. So as David, again, I would agree yeah. that probably uh, David, that I will give thanks, recount, be glad, exalt, and sing praise. Notice all those verbs. This is highly engaged, purposeful, emotional thanksgiving and praise to God. I want you to notice as well, I give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. The end of verse, uh, first uh, stanza of verse one. And whole heart, it's, it's very hard to get the, the total sense of what that means. So perhaps the best way to think about that with my whole heart, my total complete inner being. So you have the psalmist engaged in profound, deeply emotional, exclamatory thanksgiving and praise to God. So he gives thanks to God. Notice the second part of the first stanza, I will recount all your wonderful deeds. Um, I'm not, I don't want you to answer this question, but have you ever taken a piece of paper and just put a list of all of the wonderful deeds God has done to you, for you? Can you give thanks? Can you list them? Can you count them? And I'm not, there's nothing rigidly legalistic about that. It's just saying sometimes it's good for us to review and recount the faithfulness of God. 
And that's what David is doing. And I think it reminds us of something. That is a task that I think is, is important. You see that in a lot of the Psalms. You see it a little bit in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the author is just saying, I'm, I'm at a point where I have so much to be thankful for, but I know that tomorrow is going to be a challenge to my faith. So to get ready for the next bout, to get ready for the next level of struggle in this fallen, broken world, I'm going to recount the faithfulness of God to me. And the intent of that is if God has been faithful to me in the past, and I can remember them, and I can itemize them, and I can praise God for them, I know one thing, he will be faithful to me in the future. And so the psalmist then and here you get this level of intensity. It now kicks up a bunch of notches. I will be glad. I will exult. So the gladness, and that's you know, that sounds almost shallow, but it's a it's a wonderful Hebrew word. The gladness is a joyous, boisterous, bombastic gladness that causes him to exult. And exult is a word of praise to exalt someone, to exalt God, is to hold him high, to lift him up above everything else in your life. You and I are not circumstance-controlled people. You and I are Holy Spirit-controlled people, because our focus is on God, not our circumstances. Now, those two sentences I just uttered are the truth— but often they don't characterize you and me. We are focused on our circumstances and reacting to and responding to our circumstances. That's life. <laughs> That's real world, harsh, brutal reality life. But the Bible keeps encouraging us to keep our focus on God. Our circumstances are the mountains and valleys of life. Faith keeps the focus on God. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? We walk by faith, not by sight. And so the psalmist is saying, I am giving thanks. I'm recounting all of the things God's done. I'm joyously, bombastically, boisterously glad, and I will lift high the name of God. I will sing praise. That's why El Elyon fits this as a title, because he's exalting God, lifting God high. And so the Most High God is the object of his praise and his thanks because of all that God has done for him. Now, verse 3, through the, the, the first part of the psalm, verse 12, what David does is he recounts and we are assuming he has very specific things in mind here. He doesn't tell us what they are. But as you know, David was a man of war. He vanquished all of Israel's enemies, from the Moabites to the Edomites to the Ammonites to the Philistines to the Arameans to the north. He neutralized the threat of the Phoenicians to the northwest. He vanquished all those enemies. He was a man of war. So his, his focus is on the the victories God gave him as he defended the integrity of the nation and vanquished the enemies and brought peace. David brought peace to the nation 
and his son Solomon, who will succeed him, will benefit from that peace because he will rule in, in the time that he ruled, for the most part, a time of extended peace. So his focus is on these victories. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause as you have set on the throne, giving righteous judgment. So assuming verse stanza three, verse three is focused on a military campaign, activity, battle, whatever, his, his focus is because God's enthroned. Here again is fleshing out what El Elyon means, the most high God. For you have maintained my just cause. God is his defender. God is his advocate. You have set on your throne. God's, from his throne, God has made things right for Israel. He has dealt with the wicked. He's vindicated the righteous. And God's rule is always characterized by righteous judgment. And so you have this, this marvelous summary. It, it really is this marvelous summary of what the sovereign providential rule of God is like. He's not a tyrant. He's, he's, not, uh, he's not impulsive in his rule. He's not reacting. He sovereignly rules. He identifies with the just cause of his covenant people, and from his throne, he rules in righteous judgment. Now, verse 5 and into verse 6, I think has for us, as we look at it this side of the cross, and we look at it in terms of the coming of Christ in his second advent, this, and the, the verb here, now, I'm, I don't mean to impress you, but it's important. These verbs are present perfect. These are verbs that talk about God and the continuing results through history of how God deals with injustice, authoritarian, um, impulsive, unjust actions by rulers. You have rebuked the nation. You have done it in the past, and you will continue to do it throughout all time. That's what the present perfect means. You have rebuked the nations in the past, and you will, through all history, always rebuke nations. You have made the wicked past. You have done it in the past, and you will do it throughout all of human history. The wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. You have done it in the past, and you will continue to do it through all the future. Blot out their name forever. Their evil nature, their powerful oppression is gone. I just finished reading a book by uh, British historian Tom Holland on Rubicon, The Decline of the Roman Republic. I know a book you'll all be excited about reading. It was really a good book. But it, it reminded me again of just, just what David is saying here. The Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. The Roman Empire was an oppressive, terror-filled empire. You get out of the way, Rome crushed you. So what did God do? Blotted out their name forever. 
When you talk about the Roman Empire today, you go and you read the history books, but you look at ruins. You go to the Roman Forum today, it's ruins. You go to the Colosseum today, it's in ruins. You remember it as a focus for archaeological digs and historians, but it has no, it has absolutely no effect because God rebuked, God made the wicked perish, he blotted out their name. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities, you've rooted out. You go to Babylon today, what do you see? Yeah, well, I wouldn't advise you go there, it's in Iraq, but you go there today, what do you see? Ruins. There's nothing left. You go to Nineveh today, if you can dig away all the sand, what do you see? Ruins. You go to you go to the, to the sites of Alexander, Egypt, that great city that Alexander the Great built in the, in the 330s. Most of it's underwater. Most of it's in ruins. David is making a comment about how God deals with evil, unrighteous, political power throughout all history. The memory of them has perished. That's a cryptic evaluation of God's justice in human history. Adolf Hitler wanted to build a thousand-year Reich. It lasted 12 years. And he utterly and totally brought Germany down with him. Berlin was an absolute rubble on May 8, 1945, when the German general surrendered to the Allied forces. God brought Nazi Germany down. I mean, I can say that with confidence because of what 5 and 6 is saying. David is making a comment on how God deals with evil nations. He brings them down, and it's, in per, it's present perfect. This is his continuous present way of doing things always, always, always. And that is comforting for me. It should be comforting to you. Because that's how our God works. That's how our God is, our El Elyon, our Most High. But it's always hard when you're living in something like this, when you're living through something like this. It's, it's almost impossible to envision this ever happening. In 1939 or 1942, it was almost impossible to envision that Adolf Hitler would be brought down. But he was. And David is just making the comment, no nation can thumb its nose of God at God with impunity. You are, you are silly, you are stupid, you are inane, you are ludicrous. If you think you can defy God, in the midst of it, it may look like, I'm talking about a ruler, I'm not talking about you and me specifically, but this is what God is, excuse me, this is what David is saying about his God. He observed it in history. He observed it in his dealings with all of the unrighteous oppressors of Israel. The Philistines were the thorn in Israel's flesh, and it took David to finally neutralize them. So you have this, this wondrous summary of God's providential work in history. I mean, my area of study, and I have four degrees, and they're all in history and historical theology, and this is what I've studied all my life. This is exactly, exactly what you study in history. 
You can ignore God and be an atheist and just say, well, that's just the rise and fall of nations. The Bible tells us this is God acting in history. And no nation can defy him with impunity. There will be a time where his justice will, will work into and work through and bring that nation down. So David then comments in verse 7, the Lord, again, note it's Yahweh, the Lord sits enthroned forever. He isn't a temporary God. His rule isn't from this year to this year, and you bookend it with two. No, 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 no. His rule is forever. He has established his throne for justice. He is a just, perfect, righteous king. He's not impulsive. He's not capricious. He's not unreliable. He is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And for you and me, we should praise God for that. He deals with things. So David continues. He judges, verse 8, he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Literally in the Hebrew, he's a minister of justice. Now that verse 7 and verse 8 has application throughout history but it is application as well to the future, end-time, final judgment of God. No one is ever going to be able to stand before God and say, you're being unrighteous, you're being unfair, you're being inequitable. God will perfectly judge. He ministers justice perfectly. He is not a capricious judge. He is a God who is perfect in all his attributes. And that righteous, upright perfection affects how he ministers justice. He judges as literally, he ministers justice to the people. Jim, yeah. um, I have a question here or a comment, I guess. Uh, what you're advocating for, um, and it's totally, I mean, biblically correct, obviously, but that we need to stay in the scriptures, we need to stay in prayer. We need to continue to talk to God and ask him those questions that are on our hearts and minds because he's created us with that intellect and that curiosity and that sometimes lack of faith where we need to come together like we are today and then individually in Bible study and prayer how, do you, don't you think that that's really essential to continue our consistent walk and, and faith with the Lord? Just not my comment, but how would you address that? Well, all the things you suggested are all <laughs> appropriate and, and, and right. And I think uh, one of the one of the values, and I assume that's one of the reasons why all of those uh, that are in the class here today. Uh, one of the reasons you come to it is because you desire that. But if we do not feed, I use the metaphor of eating, if we do not feed on the Word of God, we lose His perspective. We really do. You need to, you, you know, again, I want to make a legalistic rule or regulation. It's up to you how you do this. But the value of spending a little bit of your day, each day in the Word of God, 
keeps your mind and your heart and your will focused on him. Now, I'll, I'll be real acerbic here. If all you do is watch Fox News or CNN or whatever it is you watch, you get terrified and panicked and anxiety-ridden. Well, that God doesn't want you to do that. So you have to be wise and discerning about where you're going to get your information. But you should at least be balancing whatever you do with news with keeping your focus on God's Word. This psalm is a marvelous reminder of who our God is. Things may seem out of control, but from God's perspective, they're not. He's going to make things right. That's what David is telling us. He's going to make things right. And so our trust and our focus is not in a political party. Our trust and our focus is in him. And so in that sense, David keeps telling us, in, in this psalm, keep telling us, keep your focus on him. And the only way you can keep your focus on him in 2021 is if you're spending some of your time each day in his word and getting his perspective, his vantage point, and where he's taking things. David is saying, this is the way my God acts in human history. Trust him. And I can't think of any better message for us in 2021 than the message of this psalm. Thank it's you. a powerful reminder of our God. Okay? Now, let Thank me pick... You. All right, you're welcome. Let's pick up and in verse uh, 9, 10, and 11, and 12. He's bringing... He's bringing his first part of his psalm to a conclusion, these big-picture, meta-narrative-type statements. This is the effect. This is the effect that David is asking us to consider when we know and worship and exalt a God like this. Again, verse 9, Yahweh is the title. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed— a stronghold in times of trouble. He's a place, a person of refuge and security. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. If God is this sovereign and providential of a God, he is a place of safety. There's no other place on earth that's as safe and secure as your relationship with God. And there's no greater knowledge to have, no greater content than to understand, know your name, to understand who God is. And the only way to know who God is, is to study his word. Who is he in terms of his attributes? How has he acted in terms of his actions? Where is he taking history in terms of his goals? And when you know God like that, you put your trust in him. For you, O Lord, and this was the study of that chose you. He does not forsake those who seek him. He doesn't forsake them. He doesn't abandon them. If you belong to him, he never abandons you. He never gives up on you. He never throws in the towel. You belong to him. So David then says, sing praises to Yahweh. He sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful. He remembers. And he does not forget. 
the cry of the afflicted. He who avenges blood is mindful. That's God's justice. He is a God who settles accounts. He is a God who makes things right. So these first 12 verses, and in your notes, I called them praise to the sovereign eternal judge of the world. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic summary. Big picture, meta-narrative, giving you the broad base. This is how God acts in history. Study your history books and see if it's not true. Study the Bible and see if it's not true. And it helps build what David says at the end. He's a place of safety and security. He never abandons those who are his. And he always, always deals with people in justice. He will avenge. He will reward. He's that kind of God. He's not frivolous. He's not impulsive. He's not capricious. You can trust him totally and completely. This is a great example. This meaning these um, uh, 12 verses is a great element of a Christian philosophy of history. It really is. Mm. A Christian philosophy of history starts with the premise that God is sovereign. Second, that God is in control of all things. His providence is real, ultimately. And third, that he is moving history in a direction. It's a linear view of history. He's moving it in a direction. And fourthly, that direction, that end, is the establishment of kingdom on earth that will occur at the return of his son. Because he has invaded this planet. His son launched the invasion, the incarnation, and he's going to complete He's going to complete that when his son returns, when he vanquishes his enemies and sets up his kingdom. That's part of a philosophy of history. So then verse 13 through 20, the end, David gets, uh, again, a, a specific here as he talks about this sovereign providential God that who will, who will judge the wicked, but he gives hope because of who he is. And because of how he acts, there's always hope. So David now, very personally, be gracious to me, O Yahweh. See my affliction from those who hate me, O you who lift me up from the gates of death. So he's given us kind of a big picture view of God acting in the first 12 verses. Now, something is happening in David's life whether it's an enemy rising up against the kingdom or whatever it is, he's asking God something very specific, an affliction. We don't know what it is, but he does what he does so often in the Psalms. He appeals to God's grace. David understood something that you and I understand as well. God always deals with us on, in grace. Aren't you thankful God does not deal with us only on the basis of justice? If God dealt with Jim Ekman only on the basis of justice, man, there'd be no hope. I might last an hour. By the second hour, I'd be a cindering, boiling uh, piece of, of junk on the carpet. I'd be done. But that's not God. He understands us. In the words of Paul, he understands that we're dust. Be gracious to me, O Yahweh, and in your gracious dealing with me, see my affliction. Lift me up from the gates of death. 
This is not a desperate prayer. This is a prayer rooted in confidence and faith. Why? See verses 1 through 12. This isn't a cry of desperation. This is a cry of confident trust. He's in trouble, whatever that is. Then he says, here's the intended result. When you do this for me, God, here's my intended result. And again, these are, these are prophetic perfects. This is ongoing. It goes on. And I may recount for the rest of my life and on beyond all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion, that I may rejoice now and forever in your salvation. So this is, this is, this is in, in summary, because we know who God is and we cry out in faith and trust and confidence to him, the intended result is it's going to give us another opportunity to praise and, and honor and exalt God. You did it again, God. Thank you. And then David goes back to these kind of big picture things. The nations, and verse 15 now, the nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. That's a confident, trustworthy statement. This is what David has observed. Now look, if you are not familiar with this term, you need to be familiar with it. Verse 13 is an example of talionic justice. It's the justice of the Bible. Talionic, it's spelled T-A-L-I-O-N-I-C. I believe I've talked about that before. But you, it, when I read this, I was studying Monday for, for a class, and when I read this again in verse 15, I was reminded of someone. I was reminded of Haman, H-A-M-A-N, in the book of Esther. If you remember, Haman asked, and, and he agreed to do it temporarily, but he asked Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, to commit genocide against the Jews, to wipe them out. And he was going to start with Mordecai. And so Haman had built the gallows to execute Mordecai. Do you remember what happened to Haman? Haman ended up being executed on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. That's Talionic justice. And so David is just making this comment. The nations have sunk into the pit they made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. And I mean, just you can think of any major power throughout human history. And that is exactly what's happened to every major nation in human history. That has been oppressive, unjust, brutally, totalitarianly cruel. That's exactly what happens. And it, it's, it's an amazing comment about how God acts consistently in history. When you're in the middle of it, you can't even envision this happening. But David said, this is the premise. And in verse 16, Yahweh has made himself known by his executed judgment. That's how I would prefer to translate that. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hand. Verse 13 and verse 14, excuse me, verse 15 and verse 16 are Hebrew parallelism. They're saying the same thing in different ways. They're just saying exactly the same thing. God's justice is talionic. What you did, you will experience the retribution perfectly and righteously and holistically. The wicked, verse 17, the wicked shall, I would prefer to translate that, must 
return to Sheol. Death is their destiny. All the nations that forget God. And that's true. The great civilizations of human history are in the dustbin of history. Their leaders are in Sheol, whether Sheol means hell or the grave. For the needy shall not always be forgotten by God, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, Yahweh, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. So God, verse 18, because of who God is, as David has explained, there's hope. God doesn't forget. You will not be forgotten. The hope of the poor will not perish forever. And so verse 19 and verse 20 is a, is a marvelous prayer for divine intervention. And you can pray that. David could pray that 3,000 years ago, which is approximately when David lived. You can pray that today in 2021. Arise, Yahweh, let not man prevail. Let, not, let the nations be judged. Put them in fear. Let the nations know that they are but men, mortal, ordinary, fallen, broken human beings that need the grace of God. And if they do not embrace it, they will face eternal separation from God. So, I mean, maybe you can tell this. I absolutely love Psalm 9. Because then as an historian, it's just it's a, it's a it's a fantastic summary of a Christian philosophy of history, bedrock premises and axioms that give us hope for the future, but also give us the confidence that our God is working through in human history his wheels of justice to accomplish just, righteous, equitable things. In human history. And anyone who spent any time studying history sees that's exactly what God has done. And so the hope that we have is, is putting our hope and faith in a gracious God, as David said in verse 13, who knows who we are, knows our frailty, knows our needs. That's why he sent Jesus to rescue us from our fallenness and brokenness and sin and make, his, make us his children and his joint heirs. Our future is set. Our destiny is established. We will be citizens of the coming kingdom and ultimately of the new heaven and new earth. I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that would be something to be excited about. All right. Can I uh, ask a couple of questions? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, one of them is kind of technical. You've brought up uh, two times this uh, present perfect and um, I would expect if something is ongoing that it would inject the continuous tense in there. If I wanted to say that something was perfected or done, um, how do I do that in the present without, like I'm done with my dinner, but I'm not gonna keep eating it? Uh, it well, uh, that that is a really silly example, but I'm going to go with it, okay? Okay. Your, your present is you're eating and ingesting the food into your body. Right. The present perfect nature of it is the ongoing effects of ingesting and nurturing your body is your body will grow, your body will remain healthy, you'll get a good night's rest, etc. The ongoing, the it's ongoing a, But effect. that's a secondary effect, though, isn't it? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that require another complete thought to discuss 
how the meal was going to nourish me versus describing that it had actually happened. I'm, I've run across this um, construction a couple of other times in this class. That's why I'm asking about it. And so I don't understand it. And it's not in the Greek this time. It's No, because the Greek language has a similar, a, a similar tense to it. But uh, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know how else to explain it, Russ. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a continuous, it's focusing on the act, whatever that act might be. In, in this case, it's, he's saying, you have rebuked, you have made the wicked perish, you've blotted out. I'm going to look in verse 5 there, for example. And so God has done that once, but this now gives us the perfect nature of it. This gives us a sense how a God will always deal with this for the rest of human history. Can I look this up offline as a present perfect in, is this Aramaic? Uh, no, this is Hebrew. Hebrew. Hebrew nine, uh, Psalm 9 is written in Hebrew. Got it. Um, then the my other question um, is, I was... Uh, caught by this uh, in 17, the wicked shall return to Sheol. We've always um, omitted that as the grave or hell. <clears throat> and that assumes, you know, I, and I read in Genesis that from dust we are formed into dust we shall return, mm -hmm. but not from hell we started into hell we remember, shall return. Remember Sheol, Sheol. Or the grave. Yeah, Sheol can be the grave. And I think it's here it's used as, as the grave. As a matter of fact, most of the times in the Old Testament when Sheol was used, it's referring to the grave. Does that mean the does grave or does that mean death? Because I was, I wasn't, I did not exist. I was created and then I died because of the sin, right? Um, because of the wages of sin or well, death. If Sheol, if Sheol, Sheol is the grave, which is the consequence of death. So what happens in the grave? your body deteriorates and goes right. back to dust. Now we put them in nice caskets and it takes a much, much longer time for the body to go in, but it's ultimately go back to dust. So David is just saying here, I mean, Sheol is a metaphor and it, it, it we're, and this is the problem with it. We're transliterating it from the Hebrew. We're just bringing the letters into English and that doesn't really very helpful because it doesn't explain it. Right. But it's, it's clear, this isn't hell here. Sheol right. is usually used in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, usually used for the grave. And the grave is where your body deteriorates into dust. And that's why, you know, if you've ever, uh, you've ever read Shakespeare's Hamlet, he, where you have the, 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 the two guys uh, speaking, and they talk about, we all will turn to dust. Maybe the dust we're breathing right now is the dust of Alexander the Great. <laughs> right. That's how far, because in effect, that's really, that's really what we are. We, get, we, yeah. we come from dust and we go back to dust. Got it. So my, only, my key is the return. The question is the um, verb return. Because like you, you were start, dust. So, you, you were so dust. it's dust. It is still, it's consistent with exactly. dust to dust. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly the idea. It's fleshing out. The metaphor of Sheol as as the grave. Thank you. That's why the fantastic the fantastic <laughs> promise of the resurrection uh -huh. is God's going to put all these molecules and atoms back together, and we're going to shoot up into the air and then be transformed with a new resurrected glorified body that'll never ever deteriorate again. Upgrade. Sort of <laughs> a <laughs> somewhat exciting thought, because I am the oldest person in this class, but I'm beginning to feel a little pain in my left knee when I wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm.
And so when I got out of bed, I got to stretch around, I do my exercise and I'm starting to feel better. My resurrected body ain't going to have that problem. I'm blind to my left eye from a childhood accident. When I have my new resurrected body, I'm going to see out of both eyes. I have no idea what peripheral vision is like. Don't ever play basketball, because if you learn that I'm blind in my left eye, you always steal the ball from me, because you can come up my left eye, I don't see it. That's why when I was in high school, I didn't play basketball, I wrestled, because at least then I could control what the guy's going to do. Well, anyway, I'm getting way beyond the subject. Any other questions about Psalm 9? I would love to give you a thought paper assignment on Psalm 9, but I won't do that. Okay, everybody with me? Dr. Eckman, here's a reverse thought paper for you. Oh, <laughs> Jim, okay. <laughs> Um, that I that that God in His sovereignty is going to reign and rule, and then He's going to He's going to overthrow these um, nations that are evil. That I completely understand. And but what I struggle with are are the consequences on the individual level while we're waiting for the Lord to act. I mean, Hebrews 11, I mean, people are sawn in two and fed the lions. And you read Fox's Books of Martyr where people are burned at the stake for their faith. And you read um, of modern-day martyrs who have their heads chopped off because of their, their Christian faith. And you read about these great victories that the Lord gave Israel. Well, you know that inside those victories, hundreds, probably thousands of Israelites died in the battle. So what, I mean, I guess my question is on an individual level, what do we say to ourselves about those individuals who lose their lives for their faith, suffer for their faith? You know, like Hebrews, you know, 11, they, they didn't see the, they didn't see the victory that, that God had promised them. And I, I just, I mean, I, I don't know what to do with it sometimes when I think about that. Well, that, that's really a, a wonderful uh, and very appropriate question, Jim. I, I, the answer to that, I think, and that is part of the theme that's in Hebrews chapter 11, is uh, whether he's talking about Abraham or he's talking about Enoch or whatever, their focus was on eternity. He was see Abraham was seeking, seeking a, a homeland, but a greater homeland. I'm paraphrasing it one that was in eternity, one that was in heaven, uh, a greater city. I mean, all of those, those things that are, are part of the, the, the narrative there in, in Hebrews 11, as the author's reviewing all that. And Jim, I think the, the answer to that when you're on the individual, individual person to person to person, and we're talking here, and I think that's the, the, in back of your question, we're talking about righteous people. We're talking about people who made mm -hmm. the decision to be the followers of Christ or the faithful, the faithful Jew of the Old Testament who's committed to the Lord. I'm, I'm not talking about the unregenerate here. And for those who are faithful, those who, who, who are redeemed, then that too becomes the key motivation for why they do what they do and why they're willing as a disciple of Jesus to be a martyr to be willing to die for the cause, because two things we know as a result of that. First, because of our faith and our trust in God, we know that we will be in heaven with him, to be absent of the bodies, to be present with the Lord, that eternal perspective of things. Death is not my enemy. Debilitation is not my enemy, because God has promised me 
When I die, I'll go to be with him. God has promised me that my new resurrection body will not be debilitated, will not be declining, will not be in any way hurting. It will be a beautiful, perfect body. The second thing, and I, I've read a lot, of the, a, lot, a lot about the martyrs. I've even read some of their testimonies through church history, is they had a second sense, second focus. They knew that their martyrdom, what they were doing, would advance the cause of Christ on earth. And whether you're a Chinese um, uh, mission, a missionary to the Chinese during the Taiping Rebellion in the early 20th century, when they wiped out tens of thousands of Christian missionaries, you had the sense, as many I've read some of their diaries, you have the sense that I'm advancing the kingdom cause in China. In some way, my martyrdom is going to advance the cause. So, Jim, the only, the only way to look at that is even being, as a disciple, even be willing to die advances the cause of God, advances the cause of Christ. In some way, it's contributing to that. And that's faith. There's no objective evidence for that. Abraham no, had no objective evidence in his life that God would keep his promises. He saw Isaac, <laughs> but he didn't see his descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. He didn't see all the nations blessed with him. He never even saw his descendants occupying the land God. God even gave him the boundaries of the land. Abraham never saw any of that, but he still trusted his God. So on an individual basis, our trust and our faith is always framed by an eternal perspective, and secondly, always framed by a strong sense, again, rooted in our faith, that what is happening to us is advancing the cause of Christ in some way. And only God can see that. But Jim, that's the best I can do. <laughs> Jim, I think, that, I think of that verse, lo, I am with you, even until the end of time. And that doesn't necessarily mean when he wraps things up, I don't think, but it means when we are finished here. On yeah, that's yep, that's right. All right, good. Good questions. Thanks for all your comments and questions as well. Let's, what time is it? Oh my goodness, it's, wow. Let's just start Psalm 10, uh, and we will never finish. It's kind of a long psalm. It's 18 verses, but if you're looking at your notes, I entitled this, God Defends the Helpless, and I want you to notice, and this is, we saw such triumphant words of Psalm 9. Psalm 10 is a little different. Why, O Yahweh, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, all the triumphant notes of verse of chapter of Psalm 9, rather, you see almost the opposite here. The psalmist is struggling with God's seeming silence. The psalmist is struggling with the seeming distance of God. Now, what we can infer here is that whatever the psalmist is crying out, whatever the psalmist is praying, whatever the situation is, God does not seem to be acting. God does not seem to be responding. And I, I would guess this, I would believe this is true. Every one of you listening here this morning, you, you've been there at some point. A difficult situation, oppressive situation, confining situation, life-threatening situation, fill in the blank of anything you want to put there, and God doesn't seem to be answering. And so the, the psalmist is saying, far away, hide yourself. 
Now, your faith and your understanding of God knows that can't be true, but in your emotions, that's the way it seems. And so it's kind of like it's rhetorical. These are rhetorical questions, but the rhetorical questions of lament and, wait a minute, God, you're supposed to be my helper. You're, you're supposed to be the one that doesn't forget me. You're supposed to be the one that that's, watches over me. You're supposed to be my refuge, what we just read about in Psalm 9. And so the psalmist then gives us a little sense of the situation that he's in. Verse 2, in, all, in arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. So this is a situation, the arrog the, in arrogance, the wicked are hotly pursuing the poor. Here's the prayer, let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. That's back to what we just read in Psalm 9. God's tallying on justice. Deal with them, Lord. For the boasts, wicked boasts of the desires of the soul, and the one greedy for grain curses and renounces the Lord. That word renounces could be reviled. It could be translated despises. So the psalmist is in this, this very difficult situation. We don't know any of the specifics, but he seems alone. He seems isolated, and God doesn't seem to care. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, that's how the ESV translates this, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, the pride of his face, just that's a, I, I really like that translation, but the idea there is the haughty, proud, arrogant look of someone. The wicked does not seek him, meaning seek God. In fact, just the opposite, his thoughts his mindset, his worldview, his conviction is there is no God. This person, this arrogant, wicked person, is a practical atheist. Whether they have a well-thought-through worldview of atheism, that's not the point. The psalmist is just saying they're living their life as if there's no God. What does that mean? No accountability, no justice, I I'm captain of my own ship, and I can do whatever I want. I am never going to be accountable to anyone at any point at any time. That's practical atheism. That I can do whatever I want with impunity. I'm never going to have to be called to account for what I do. The psalmist is saying, this is my enemy. This is the person who's causing me to be in such a difficult situation, and God, you don't seem to care, verse 1. In addition, verse 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, the psalmist describes the characteristics of this practical atheist who is doing whatever he wants to do, however he wants to do it, seemingly with impunity, because he doesn't believe in accountability. First of all, in verse 5, his ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great translation. He puffs at them. Contempt, scorn. 
So the first characteristic is they're seeming prosperity. They're wealthy. Everything they do seems to be turning to gold. Verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet with adversity. Seeming security. This person, this arrogant, haughty person is a practical atheist. They live well. Nothing seems to be going wrong. There's nothing adverse in their life. Thirdly, there's insolence, disrespect. His mouth is filled with cursing, deceit, oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in the hiding places he murders the innocent. And so you have this, verse 7, you have this insolence, disrespect. Again, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter whatever he does. His mouth, his, what his words, he's duplicitous, he's deceitful, he's oppressive. He's filled with iniquity. And in addition, verse 8 and 9, his primary means of getting what he wants is violence. He sits in ambush and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. So you, you have a description in a series of these verses, a description of the practical atheist who believes he'll never have to give an account for anything he does. And he's deceitful, he's arrogant, he's prosperous, he's seemingly secure, and he's exploitative, he's oppressive, he shortcuts all the law, he seizes and lurks and steals. And God, you don't seem to care. You don't seem to notice any of this. And we have to infer from the language of verse 1 that the psalmist has been taken advantage. The psalmist has experienced this. And he's kind of hurling an accusation at God. Have you missed all this? Where are you, God? Your silence and your seeming distance is impossible for me to accept and to endure. Why aren't you acting? Remember the book of Habakkuk. Just because you don't see God acting doesn't mean he isn't acting. So if you want to find out how God responds to this lament in the first 11 verses of Psalm 10, you're going to have to come back next week. I thought that would get a few laughs, but it didn't get anything. I just have nothing but silence. But this, this, this psalm, I can't finish it. It's past a quarter of already. But this psalm is laying out, I think, the kind of scenario that most of us, if not all of us, at one time have said, Lord, why are the wicked prospering? And you don't seem to care. All the methods they use, the deceitfulness, and you don't seem to notice. Your silence, Lord, is deafening. And your seeming distance for me is intolerable. Next week, we're going to see how the psalmist resolves this. All right? Good stuff. At least I think. Thank you, Jim. All right, I'm going to pray here, and then I'll let you go, all right?
Lord, we're thankful for the Psalms. I'm, I'm glad that the, the guys allow me to take a little uh, bit of uh, time to study several of the Psalms as we study the various books of the Bible. And I think it's important to do that because the Psalms is a major part of the Old Testament. And it helps us to see the heart and emotion, to see the real world struggles as individual people, whether it's David or, or uh, the other writers, Solomon and all the various uh, unknown writers of the Psalms, how they try to live in a fallen, broken world, live with their faith and confidence, and yet the circumstances can overwhelm them. That's life. And doing life is hard. But it instructs us once again to keep our focus on you, to keep our trust and our faith on you. And I love Psalm 9 because it just reminds us of the kind of God we serve and worship. You ultimately bring everything right. You make everything right. You will do it at the end in the great white throne judgment, and you're doing it throughout human history. So, Lord, help us to trust you with this. And, Lord, as we'll learn next week, you are not silent. You are not distant. You are acting. And it's that confidence that helps build our faith. So be with these dear folks. Watch over them. I don't know any special needs there might be, any special... Uh, special requests or spiritual, physical, financial, emotional needs. But Lord, you know each one. You know us perfectly. So meet those according to your perfect will. So help these men to be strong, strong men of faith, men of God who then represent you well in a very dark world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Jim. You're welcome.